0: This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast.
1: We need people who look like us who understand the numbers because if we don't, then that means whoever does understand the numbers gets to make decisions on behalf of the rest of us. And that at all, <laughs> that's unacceptable.
0: This week, my guest is Anna Gifty a Poku ceo and co-founder of the sadie collective as well as a researcher author and activist the sadie collective was founded in 2018 to address the pipeline and pathway problem for black women in economics and related fields it was named after dr sadie tm alexander who you will learn more about in this episode as the youngest recipient of the CEDAW women's rights award by the u.n convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women An award I'd like to mention that was also given to a particular new Madam Vice President, Anna embodies true humility because as she says, she did not co-found the Sadie Collective to win awards. The work and the difference it can make is what matters. In a world where we want to be seen as experts, she's refreshingly open to lifelong learning and willing to share her knowledge. And you'll hear all of this in our discussion. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm very excited to speak with you. And I'm gonna start by asking you a question that I ask all my guests. So my mom says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And I'm wondering what is missing from your resume that think that you think people should know about you? Oh, that's
1: a great question. Um, I think for me that I'm a lifelong learner and I learn out loud. So. You know, if you follow me on Twitter at it's Afronomics, I oftentimes ask questions that probably people have questions about, but um, won't necessarily come out and say. So, I think for me, that's one thing I would include in my resume: I'm somebody who learns out loud and loves to um, teach what I learn, basically.
0: Yeah, I love that. I literally said that I could be a like forever student if I could, if I could always be paid to be a student, I would do it. Yes,
1: <laughs> you can't get paid to be a student. If you get a I, PhD or a master's.
0: I know, but like I, I've done a master's. I don't know what I would do a PhD in yet. Gotcha. So that's the difficulty. Um, okay, so I know you founded the Sadie Collective and I've done my research on Sadie Alexander, but I would love if you could share sort of the mission and a bit of the origin story with my listeners.
1: Sure. So the Sadie Collective currently is the only nonprofit organization in the country and arguably the world that specifically addresses the pipeline and pathway problem as it relates to Black women in economics and related fields. So to put it another way, we essentially address sort of issues surrounding the lack of representation of black women in economics, policy, finance and data science. And these are fields that are basically at the nexus of power and quantitative analysis, which is why we kind of focus on these fields in terms of the origin story. Well, I think, you know, there's a there's a lot of different components of it. So I'll give you sort of the short version. Mm-hmm. Essentially, um, Fanta and myself, my co-founder, Fanta and I, um, connected over LinkedIn. This is the one LinkedIn connection that actually bore fruit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, you know what? LinkedIn, LinkedIn can work. That is actually how I came yes. about writing my book. I oh. thought it was a joke at first, but who knew?
1: Right. So I think that, you know, it, it was a powerful connection. Like I really kind of sought her out because I was trying to do something that she had done. And so from there came a friendship. And we had, you know, been sort of going to conferences together and having these experiences in the economics profession. She had gone to Howard. I had gone to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Okay. And we sort of met up in our first conference um, in January, I believe it was Philadelphia. And so we met each other. We ended up going to a session where a Black woman called Dr. Rhonda V. Sharp was talking about how Black women like us weren't entering economics at all. In fact, sort of the um, rate at which black women were entering the field of economics at the undergraduate level um, is declining and it's still declining. And so we kind of looked at each other like, hmm, that's interesting. We had been talking through a couple of different ideas prior to, and then both of us had a really interesting experience that paralleled each other. So I was at the University of Chicago um, that summer, and then Fonto was at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. For those who don't know, the Federal Reserve Board is essentially the body that oversees the United States economy. They're the ones who set the interest rates, that sort of thing. So she was there. She was the only Black woman in her division. I was at U Chicago, which surprisingly was super, super white. So we were kind of having these parallel experiences of racial isolation. And I have been praying and meditating and sort of thinking about, you know, what does this mean that I'm in this field? Um, it seems like a really great fit for me, but I feel like there's more that needs to be done. And the fact that, you know, when you look at Black economists, you don't really find anybody, or the people you find might be, you know, history, like they're they're dead and gone. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I had this like sort of thought. It had been kind of, trick- I I wouldn't say trickling, but like you know, uh, simmering in the back of my head. And I kind of posted to Fonta and I said, what if we like put together a conference for black women? And she was like, sure. And literally within four months, we pulled together a team of about seven to eight individuals. Um, We promoted the conference. We found someone to host us for free. And there's the Sadie Collective. That's how it was born.
0: Again, I said (laughs) to you, what was I doing at your age? Um, Okay, so I know that your work specializes in data-driven solutions. And that makes me wonder because you know, it's the whole thing around STEM and data and numbers and economy. And for me, that just makes me like wanna cry because right. I just was so bad at that at school. And yeah. I wonder what did you want to be when you were younger?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It's it's varied, right? So I think like any kid at the age of 5 or something when people ask you who do you want to be which by the way i think that's a ridiculous question to ask a 5 year old mm-hmm. by the way right um you know i said oh medical doctor cuz that's all i knew but i will say this i sort of grew up on the daily show back in the day my my brother's substantially older than me <laughs> so he's about 14 years older than me um when we would be sort of in the living room and he it was his turn to watch tv essentially um he would watch the daily show and I'd be like, I want to watch my show, which was like PBS Kids or <laughs> something like that. And this is when I was like, maybe middle school, um, sort of late elementary school. And he'd be like, No, I'm watching The Daily Show. And th- at this time, it was hosted by John Stewart. Right. And so I got exposed to like politics and sort of um, these conversations around economics and power and what that looks like at a very young age, unbeknownst um, to me. I had no idea sort of what I was dealing with. Um, but essentially. What I found to be really interesting was law, because I thought that, you know, that's those are the kind of people who are making the rules. Right. So becoming a lawyer, um, I watched Suits growing up. So a lot of people know Megan Marco as yeah. uh, the Duchess. I know her as Rachel Zane <laughs> from the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and my favorite character of all time is from that show, Jessica Pearson. She was a powerful black woman lawyer. Just got shit done. And it was amazing to watch mm-hmm. um, as sort of a high school student going through that. But I think ultimately, yeah, law was really where I was sitting. A lot of people still think I'm gonna become a lawyer. Maybe we'll see. Um, I don't want to take the LSAT. So if there's a way I can bypass that, maybe. <laughs>
0: yeah, standardized tests. I can I can I cannot do right for me. <laughs> so I know you were born in Ghana and then you moved to the US as a child, and did that have any sort of effect on you that you think in your upbringing, your aspirations, do you consider yourself, you know, a third culture kid?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I left Ghana when I was a baby, like five months. So I'm essentially first generation here in America. Um. Yeah. You know, it was very interesting. I think there is sometimes a disconnect between Africans and African-Americans, right. This idea of not being able to understand each other's experience and, you know, ultimately how that informs your worldview. And to some sense, you know, I feel like my parents put me in schools. I was in predominantly white schools growing up. Um, So the only people I did have at the time were African-Americans, right? People who I could turn to that were in my community. Um, And I felt a lot like a a strong affinity to them. And I also felt like, you know, at a very young age, I was taught to empathize with them, right? Through what I was learning from my friends, but also what I was learning in school. Um, And so to some extent, I think kind of being this person who sort of teeters between the line of, being Ghanaian, right? So I would go to school and hang out with my African-American friends. And then I would come home to a Ghanaian house, go to a church at a Ghanaian church, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had sort of these, sometimes it felt like I was living a double life in some sense, right? Um, and again, like, you know, I was what? One of the only black kids in my school and that shaped me more than I thought, you know? One thing I realized last year was that I desegregated my elementary school. I hadn't realized that until last year. (laughs) Yeah, so I was the first black student to graduate from my elementary school. Um, And the way that worked out too was, I started off with Head Start, which is basically a government program for um, children of low income working families. And then the county actually plucked me. And so we think she has promise. We're gonna put her in a private school um, and see how she fares. And I think for me, that was really sort of a jarring experience, right? Kind of going from all black communities, including my neighborhood, then to these all white, super privileged communities. Like I've never had a backyard in my life, right? I've never lived in a house with a backyard where you would go to some of these white kids' houses and they would have acres and they're just running around and everybody has the newest play set. And I'm looking at it like, like, oh, okay. Like, I didn't know that people were living basically two different lives here. And I think to some degree, that was also an introduction into economic inequality that I didn't realize um, would manifest later on in my life. Yeah.
0: It's, yeah, it it makes me think the way you said you think there's a, there's a disconnect between African-Americans and Africans. I definitely felt that when I, you know, I was born in the U.S. and we moved back to South Africa, and then we came back, and I definitely felt that. And then when I was, always around white friends. My mom, well, one thing she made sure my brother and I knew was like, you are not like them. When it comes exactly to right. someone seeing you all, they may see you as the same as them, but when a policeman sees you all, it is not gonna be the same. Right. So you need to remember that at the end of the day. And it's it's just interesting that you don't think about those things until you like say it aloud yourself.
1: Yeah, and I think to some degree, I rejected that idea, right? This mm-hmm. idea of like, oh, they're a different kind of black. What does that mean you know what i'm saying and i think to some extent i would challenge my parents and other people who were older in the community right because a lot of them i mean to some degree also deny sort of the impact of colonialism and this idea of whitewashing um certain people who are good right in the eyes of power i feel like you know getting kind of exposure to the inequality that i saw getting exposure to you know, the only other black people in my life being African-Americans at school and finding a lot of joy in those relationships was really critical to me saying, I I absolutely understand the plight of this group, not completely. There are right. certain things I can't speak to, right? So sometimes you'll see, you know, some uh, you know really, really influential Africans in the diaspora trying to speak to African-American issues that they really don't understand. And so I think for me, it's kind of like understanding my place. I feel like I'm somebody who can uplift and empower. And I feel like that can also be reciprocated. But this idea of we're different Black, like we have different experiences and white supremacy has manifested in different ways in our lives. But I don't think we are wholly that different. And that's something that I stand by.
0: 100%. Well, I do think that you are someone that uplifts and empowers, because I know that last year you were the youngest recipient of the CEDAW Women's <laughs> <Yes>. Award. <laughs> Youngest, um, and for people who don't know, it's the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Um, How did that feel? Because I would like to add that also, our current and Vice President has also received that award.
1: Yeah. So congrats. um, um, Speaker, thank you. Um, Nancy Pelosi also received the award. All right,
0: okay, And now we're just, now we're just (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. (laughs) Yeah, you know,
1: It was weird. Um, I don't ever do, let me not say that. I'm a human being. So obviously, you know, the likes and the retweets and, oh, you're great. All that stuff is really great to hear. Um, But if I'm being quite honest, like the Sadie Collective wasn't created because I wanted to get clout,
0: Mm -hmm. right?
1: Um, I didn't help co-found Black Birders Week, which I think we're gonna talk about later, mm-hmm. because I wanted to get clout. It was really because I just wanted to uplift my friends or you know, bring resources to people who I felt needed it. So to be acknowledged for that kind of work was like, oh, you know, that's really flattering, but I don't ever do this stuff because of that. And I think I got the award around the same time um Brianna Taylor's situation was getting worse. And so sort of like the dichotomy of black joy and black pain, right. especially in this country, just sort of thinking that in the back of my head too, is sort of like, yeah, it's nice to get like awards, but like, that's not really the essence here. I would like to see policy change. That's the best award here.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, it's consistently in your face. Like I, you know, we want to celebrate Kamala being VP, but then right. you get news that, you know, Cicely Tyson has just passed and it's just uh, every day there's something that you're just right. trying to balance. Yeah. Um. I mean, speaking of the work that you wanted the Sadie Collective to do, I want to sort of ask, what do you think are tangible steps our government and if not our government? Because I think sometimes civil society is the way that it needs to go. Civil society can take to have an inclusive economy.
1: Yes. And this is where we are starting this conversation in February. So thank you for this question. (laughs) There is a policy idea that I'm going to be helping push out alongside the Groundwork Collaborative. Um, Groundwork Collaborative was previously led by someone called Janelle Jones, as well as Angela Hanks. Janelle Jones just made history as becoming the first black woman chief economist of the Department of Labor. For those Mm -hmm. who don't know the Department of Labor basically oversees jobs in our country so it's a pretty big deal and it's a pretty big deal because she has this framework that she's been putting out there for some time called black women best black women best says if we center black women in the economy everybody benefits and if you think about it it makes too much sense so what i mean is like right now it takes about 11 months for women to make as much as men but if you look at black women it takes about i think might either be like 15 or 19 months it's more than just the general women group so Mm -hmm. if we are targeting sort of closing the pay gap for black women it turns out you close the pay gap for all women so that's one really tangible example another example is when we're talking about stimulus checks right so right now people are talking about stimmies where am i where am i getting my (laughs) where am i getting my stimmy right all of that And obviously, Congress said, oh, we're going to give you sort of pennies on the dollar. $600 back pay, essentially, for the last, you know, six or seven months. Who knows how
0: long? Right.
1: Um, And, you know, if we're thinking about what's happening with Black women in particular, right, Black mothers are, 70% of them, excuse me, are the primary breadwinners in their house, according to the Center for American Progress, which is a think tank, tank, excuse me, in Washington, D.C., and then we think about what black women are also facing in terms of rent if we're talking about people who are dealing with rent crises or, or or are most likely be evicted it's black women if we also think about who has the most student debt did you know it's black women who have the most student debt in this country so all of these problems are problems that are actually pretty mainstream everybody has an opinion on them um people don't want to have student debt people don't want to be evicted and people want their stimulus checks and it turns out if you actually target these policies towards making sure that black women get those resources, everybody gets those resources because everybody else is essentially better off than black women. So that's the whole idea behind black women best. And I stand by it passionately.
0: (laughs) Me too, me too. I saw a tweet the other day that was like, I've already forgiven myself for my student loans. Like y'all are behind. Y'all need to talk to Robinette Biden. And I'm like, I'm there with you. Right, that's exactly right. (laughs) So, okay. Another thing I'm sort of wondering is you're doing all this work. I think when it comes to doing all this research and looking at all these numbers, it can sometimes be difficult to you know want to keep going. yeah, um and so I wonder what helps you keep going if there's sort of a faith or a quote or a phrase that you're like, well, we can definitely change this. This is not gonna be the situation for black women forever,
1: yeah. um what keeps me going is are two things, right? So I think God in my core. Definitely, that's like one thing. But the second thing is just engaging with the younger generation. Gen Z is a force. And I Mm -hmm. feel like people don't really understand who's coming through, (laughs) you know, to these polls. And, you know, I think AOC kind of gives us a glimpse of, you know, just how progressive things can become and just how um, sort of humanity centered policy could become if we really were to give it a chance. Um and so honestly just engaging with young people, getting a sense of where their head is at, sort of talking with them and and figuring out, you know, what inspires them. For me, that's always been the case, even as a young person. I mean I'm still young, right? But like, you know, yes, you are. <laughs> like as of like a middle schooler, high schooler, I feel like I made a decision in my heart to be just in passionate advocate for black and brown youth. Like I I was just going to spend my life doing that in any which way. And I think to some degree that kind of informed my career choices, right? Even when I was interested in medicine and I wasn't really interested in medicine, but you know, (laughs) I'm African, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I was really interested in uplifting black and brown children. So I was thinking about pediatrics. I was thinking about global health. Um, I even worked in a malaria lab where we were dealing with questions around that. And that actually inspired me to go into economics eventually. Um, But yeah, I feel like for me, that's really what keeps me going, just knowing that there's a future that's coming um, and they need better circumstances in order to thrive. Um, And, you know, there are also people who are really passionate about ensuring that the world is a better place for everyone. And that's, that's enough motivation for me.
0: Mm -hmm. So then who are some of the women who have inspired you?
1: Yes, obviously, Dr. Sadie Alexander, who, by the way, was 23 when she made history, right? Pretty young. Yeah, she got a 23 years old. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, light work. (laughs) Yep. Um, I would say Dr. Lisa D. Cook, I always mention her in these interviews. I think she's been an incredible mentor to me, somebody who keeps me grounded. Um, I would also say, you know, just the women in my life, right? Obviously my family, but there's also women in my life who I think to some degree have kept me super grounded because they remind me of who I am often. You know, shout out to my girl, Sethlina Amache, um, who is sort of like my life coach in some way and has really sort of guided how I view the world in the last few years. Um, But then I would say also just young black women everywhere. Before she was cool, I mean, she was always cool. Amanda Gorman is somebody who I've been paying attention to for some time, mm-hmm. and uh, she's amazing. And I'm so happy that people are now hip.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. she did that poem, and I was like, damn, I want to be a poet when I grow up. Yeah, and she's 22. I know, and yeah, she's like, right? well, I got a few more years. No, we're past
1: <laughs> Yeah, but she's amazing, right? There are young Black women like her who I look at, and I'm just like, wow. You know, Yara Shahidi fits that bill, Zendaya fits that bill. And then there's just young Black women I interact with that aren't necessarily celebrities or well known, but they're just young women who want to be themselves and not feel like they have to um, fight against all these barriers. And I think to some extent, that's also what informs my worldview. I'm trying to make a world um, that, you know, someone who's coming behind me faces less barriers than I did. That's the whole point right if you if this is sort of the idea of like if you go into a room and you're the only one and you're okay with that when you are dead and gone who's gonna replace you you know what i'm saying so this idea of literally creating a pipeline through how you interact with people like that's for me the whole thing and so these are the women who i feel like inspire me quite a bit
0: i'm so glad to be speaking with you because when i was on the website i watched this video that you all have and then also looked at the team and it was just so nice to scroll through a video and scroll through a page where it was people that look like me. Yeah. And it it was, just, I think a two minute video, but just like the the emotion I felt where I just was, right. I kept seeing black women right. at conferences and black women speaking. And then the team is black women because there's so many times, you know, when you're applying to jobs and things you are scrolling through the site and it's, we're all talking about diversity yeah. and then you scroll and there's like one place.
1: Yeah. And I'll say this, the conference that we host, the Say Collective hosts a conference with, by the way, is going to be happening this upcoming month, February mm-hmm. 19th through the 20th. So make sure if you're interested in um, coming to the conference, you can always buy your ticket. If you're not a Black woman and you want to still attend, there's a research reception on February 11th. Um, so, you know, being at that conference is... Like, it can bring someone to tears. It's brought a lot of people to tears, actually, right? Even our first conference, which was just 100 people, there were people trying to sneak in. (laughs) Um, And I mean, they were successful because, you know, we can't turn you away, right? (laughs) But this idea of like being surrounded by Black women at every age, at every stage, it does something to you, right? Um, I remember last year we missed COVID by this much. I think we missed it by a week week or two weeks. We had 300 Black women essentially in one room. Um, And we had just introduced our high school cohort, which is a little bit more broader than Black women. It's now Black and Brown women that we're looking at. Um, And at one point, Janet Yellen, as y'all know, she just made history as the first woman secretary of the treasury. Shout out to my girl, Janet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. She, She came to our conference. She was actually one of the speakers. And you know, one of the most, I wouldn't say, emo- I, I, I didn't want to cry, so I didn't, <laughs> right? But an emotional moment for me uh, was when all the high school students surrounded her. And they're like, oh my God, Janet. Da, da, da. And it was just really beautiful to watch. Like, that's thats the why, you know what I'm saying? Like, these are these are the young women who are coming up. And the fact that they are in a room like this is super inspiring. We actually had somebody who came to the conference with the intention to major in engineering left the conference and declared a major in economics wow um and it's just kind of like yo like i think for me that's that was when i was like we can really shift some things here if we like really keep at it so it's really exciting
0: oh i love that (laughs) so i've watched a few of your videos and you've spoken about staying humble yeah um which i think we can all you know learn from but how do you find the balance between staying humble but also realizing when like someone is legitimately discriminating against you in a field because you are you? Mm-hmm. And and how do you address that? Because there there are things that I know I'm good at right. and there are things that I can be humble about. Mm-hmm. And it's it's sort of how do I tell the difference?
1: I'm still learning this. So let me know when you find out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. Um I you know I I've been talking to
1: um, the women in my life about this and uh, my friends about this as well, sort of this um, line between humility and understanding that you're brilliant. Um, and it's something I struggle with, quite frankly. You know, self-worth is something that is has always been a difficulty in my life. And I think it's because, you know, I'm in an interesting space now where people are always telling me that I'm brilliant and, oh, my God, you're amazing, um, but I don't want that to get to my head. Right. Cause this idea of like, if I don't stay humble, God will humble me is uh-huh. quite, quite, you know, eminent in my head. Like I, it's like stamped in my forehead. Like I, I need to make sure that that is sort of how I keep moving. But I think part of how I sort of balance the two is that I never really claim to be an expert. Like if you look on anything that I do, I never say like, I know this inside and out, that's it and you know i don't ever claim to do that because i think to some extent you don't ever know everything about something right and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before around being a lifelong learner being a lifelong learner means that at some point you know obviously you can get enough knowledge to teach something but you're not like the sole expert on this right? right um and to some extent you know it's hard, right? Because to like, if you're trying to get opportunities or get in front of people, people want to say, "Well, she's an expert on X, Y, Z. Um and so then people are a little confused when I'm like, uh, but I'm, I wouldn't call myself an expert. <laughs> you know, like, I would just say, like, this is something I understand to like to um, this point." And, I, and I'll give you an example, right? So um, right now, you know, Wall Street is kind of like crazy, Whoa. right? Yes. So, you know, long story short, basically the what is happening is that hedge funds sometimes bet against businesses failing, right? And when we say businesses failing, we mean like the stock value just is ridiculously low, like $2, right? And the idea here is if you win that bet, you make twice as, or like actually not twice, like as many times as you bet um, sort of the, as a return, right? So you make maybe 20 times your bet, 10 times your bet, whatever. So right now what's happening is Reddit said, "Mm, we don't really (laughs) like hedge funds. Um, Also, we kind of want to save GameStop. So (laughs) GameStop is like a a company that sells video games, usually in store. And so they just decided that they were going to buy the stock and drive up the value. And it worked. (laughs) It did. It really worked. Um, And I think for me, it's really fascinating um, to just see that sort of play out. But to your initial point, I had written a thread on Twitter about it. So I was like, okay, this is what I think is happening, right? I must say that I know for sure. And some people just like bypass the I think part and were like, well, I don't think that. Nah. And I was like, okay, I never claimed to be an expert on this. I'm just giving you what I understand. And I think to some extent that is how I move. I say, this is what I understand the situation. I'm open to critique, I'm open to correction. But if you come to me in an out-of-pocket way, best believe, you know, I will not be, you know, really taking in what you said because mm-hmm. it's lined with hate. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. If you don't use your reading yeah. comprehension skills, I'm not going to engage.
1: That's exactly right. Yes. If it's not a dialogue, then this is not pro- a productive conversation. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. No, I like that. I, I think don't engage when someone is not coming correct. So... I will block with the instant,
1: <laughs> instantaneously. I told people, I said, "Don't come at me, and correct." If you out here commenting on everything with some tinge of, I will block you with the expeditiously. That's what exactly. I
0: would do. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone is entitled to like that energy. Yeah, because yeah. I think I think that energy go needs to go to the work you're doing and the people that you love, and that That's is exactly right. that is like a hard line for me.
1: That's exactly right. And then that humility component then comes in, because if you realize that you don't know everything, mm-hmm. that you are not, you know, the, the expert on everything, then you have to essentially take a humble stance and be like, okay, like I'm receiving stuff, right? Now I will say in my case, I'm somebody who really, I'm working hard at it. It's hard sometimes, right? Cause I'm like, I'm right, right? Um, but I think also sometimes I might come off as someone who is a know-it-all just because of the tone of my voice, right? I speak with a lot of authority, right. even when I don't have it, <laughs> you know? It's just been an ongoing problem. But I love it.
0: I love it. Cause people, people go to workshops and have coaches to learn to speak in that That's manner.
1: That's exactly right.
0: So I love it.
1: Thank you. <laughs> sometimes it's um good it depends on if i'm having like a disagreement with my parents or you know i'm talking in a in a speech or something like that yeah it can yeah, it can be I don't any. Know if I'm yeah. speaking
0: to my south african mom with that authority right <laughs> but okay so then i think you can definitely speak to authority on this what advice do you have for young women especially black women yeah. women of color who don't see these fields, you know, STEM, economics, as where they can be successful. I know that you and your mentor wrote a piece on this, and I love that you did something like that with your mentor, and so could you share sort of the advice that you give to young women?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that this idea of Black and brown women can't do math is a fallacy it's a lie, right? Because if we think about where power is concentrated, it's concentrated in people right now who are doing quantitative analysis of some sort. So think about big tech, boils down to math. Think about economics, policy, finance, boils down to math. Think about engineering, right? Boils down to math, right? So this idea of like people who are making decisions on behalf of our country, they are people who understand the numbers, and the numbers are actually, I won't say they're not too hard to understand, but they're not out of your reach. And I think to some extent, the way people talk about things makes it seem like certain things are out of your reach. Um, and so, you know, the advice that I would give people is just try, you know, give it, a, give it a try and see if you work hard at it, if it's something that resonates, right? I think a lot of people might look at me and say, well, Anna, you're, you know, you graduated with a bachelor's of math minor in economics, you're doing this and this. Math was hard. I, there were some classes I hated because what is going on? (laughs) You know, like it didn't make sense all the time. I'm somebody who asks a million questions in class. You can ask any of my fellow classmates, my friends, even people who have taught me, right? Dr. Cook, who I wrote the article with, knows this for a fact. I I just ask a lot of questions. And I think that's really where I would tell people to start. Start by asking questions. There is no shame in not knowing something. I know that sometimes, you know, not sometimes actually, the culture of even academia and um, even STEM more broadly is you can't ask questions. You have to be a natural genius. You have to know the numbers already. You have to be born out the womb doing equations. And it's a lie, quite frankly. And we need people who look like us who understand how these numbers are informing our world because the numbers are going to continue to inform our world, especially as we become more digitized, especially as we start thinking about the role of things like Wall Street in policy and how that's informing different aspects of society. We need people who look like us who understand the numbers because if we don't, then that means whoever does understand the numbers gets to make decisions on behalf of the rest of us
0: right and that at
1: all that's unacceptable quite frankly right so you know I always say ask questions ask as many questions that you want because at the end of the day if you don't understand what's going on then you can't contribute to the discussion productively and in a way that's meaningful and I'll let me let me let y'all in a little secret these these boys these these white men don't know what they're talking about either <laughs> They don't. If some guy is telling you stuff in jargon, he is regurgitating whatever somebody else just told him. If they can't break it down, that means one of two things. Either they really don't understand what's going on or they don't want you to understand. And those two reasons alone should be enough motivation to think about how numbers can be infused into what you want to explore in this world. And you can do it through a number of different things, right? I think um, in the case of economics, a lot of people think economists only study the stock market. But that's actually not the case. Economists study public health, climate change, um, protest, uh, you know, voting, a lot of different topics that you'd be surprised how numbers play a role in understanding those different things. But the people who are crunching the numbers and thinking about the relationship between, you know, this model and this outcome are the people that the president is calling on. There's a literal group of economists that the president relies on, called the Council of Economic Advisors, and they are probably some of the most powerful people in the world. They are literally informing the president of the United States. So we're thinking about, you know, where the power lies. It's where the numbers lie. And so we need more black and brown women who are, you know, going to go forth and do that. And the first thing that begins with is asking questions and asking as many questions as you need to.
0: Girl, I'm going to be asking you questions. So get ready. Like, I'm just going to text you math questions.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Why not? (laughs) You know, or one thing I always tell people is go on Twitter, engage with whomever. You'd be surprised how many people answer questions on Twitter just because you ask. Some people will look at me and be like, oh, Anna, how did you get such a big following? I asked questions. That's literally all I did. I'd be like, I don't understand what this means because someone explains to me or somebody might be talking about something. I'm like, I don't understand that. Tag this person. And that's quite literally, you know, how I've been able to engage on social media and I feel like a really productive way that has helped me better understand the world, but also make this field of STEM and economics and policy just less daunting. Mm -hmm. It's all about, you know, do you understand what they're asking about? And can you find an answer that's, you know, meaningful enough that is, you know, going to help you best understand how to move forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So you mentioned Black Birders Week earlier, and I know, so you organized Black Birders Week last year, correct? Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a series of online events to highlight and celebrate Black Birders and outdoor enthusiasts. But last year also happened to be the year of the Amy Cooper situation. So I'm wondering if the group had a chance to discuss this and how that looked, if so.
1: Yeah. So that the Black Birders Week was actually a response to Amy Cooper. And just to okay. give people a re sort of like a I guess like a reassessment of what happened. Basically, um there was a white woman who had her dog off her off her leash in an area where there's a lot of smaller animals that could be endangered. Um, a black man by the name of Christian Cooper was bird watching. So for those who don't know, there's a lot of black birders out there. Um, so shout out to my black birders, um, people who go out and they identify species and it's like a whole thing and they're wonderful people. So nature enthusiasts as well. So he was addressing this woman, please put your dog back on the leash. There's animals around that are threatened by your dog, essentially. And she called the police and said that he was harming her, that, you know, he was harassing her. And of course, you know, Christian Cooper, being his smart self, filmed the whole thing. And so essentially what ended up happening was I'm somebody who pays attention to racial justice, right? That's something that we do. And as do folks who I, um, I'm in this group with Black AF and STEM. And essentially what ended up happening was this group kind of lit up. Everybody was talking about how their experiences were very similar to Christian Cooper's. Um, All of them were Black birders, explorers, and naturalists. And so they were saying just being in nature is a threat to white people. And they were upset about that. And what had happened maybe, I think, a couple weeks right before was Ahmad Arbury unfortunately, was killed. Um, And to celebrate him, people ran, um, I think it was like eight miles or something like that on a Saturday to sort of honor him. And so based off of that, I, I was like, you know, I have an idea. I'm not sure if it'll work, but I think that if we put our heads together, this might be a really cool event. What if we just shift the narrative back to y'all and yeah. with you guys for like a like a day? And Taiki James, who is one of the co-founders, said, how about we make it a week? And I said, say less. I'll come back with some events and y'all can tell me what you think. And so we basically workshopped through some digital events. And that's sort of how Blackbirders Week took off. What we didn't realize was that, one, how many people it would reach. Mm -hmm. Um, It ended up becoming covered by CNN, BBC, um, you know, a number of different natural sciences, um, magazines such as National Geographic, the National Aquarium. And we had basically Black people in nature who were amplified in a really significant way, um, which was super exciting, right? This idea of like, celebrating what it means to be black in nature and that hashtag black in nature spearheaded its own movement where now people who were in stem were talking about black and nero black and chem black and astro talking with other black people across this platform and celebrating what it means to be black and be a scientist and be someone who's interested in stem and i think for me you know when you know when i initially posed the idea didn't even think that you know a whole thing would come out of it but it was really humbling to see that, you know, there were other Black people who were just as excited about their work and wanting to share that with the world. And so, yeah, that was essentially what ended up happening. And it's been pretty good. And I know Black Birders Week is probably going to happen this year again. Um, and a lot of other of the Black in blank weeks are going to be happening again. So be on the lookout. If you're on Twitter, make sure you are using that
0: hashtag to
1: get a sense of what's going on.
0: Absolutely. Well, before I ask you my two closeout questions, yeah. I just want to say I have enjoyed speaking to you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. for taking the time. <laughs> and you already have a new Twitter follower. Don't worry.
1: Oh yes, I was
0: up, I was up there this morning. Um, okay, so what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity?
1: Ooh, lack of empathy. Yeah,
0: that is mine.
1: Wow. And I think it encompasses everything, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of, you know, climate change, this idea of racism. I mean, those things aren't divorced, by the way, right? I think a lot of times people forget that, I don't know, I always have this theory that power and money at a certain level does something to you. Um, It kind of removes the empathy, you become apathetic. And I think that is really what's lacking here. People understand that racism is a bad thing. But empathy tells you what if you were on the other side of that racism? How would that make you feel? Right? Literally, this idea of treat others as you want to be treated is about empathy. So, I think to some extent, that needs to be something that I feel like needs to be emphasized. And if we don't have that, well, I'm not sure where we're going.
0: <laughs> I shouldn't have to touch you for you to care about it.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Okay. So, then what would you say is your greatest hope for humanity?
1: <sighs> the next generation. I'm just very excited about everything they're doing. If we're talking about the continent of Africa, it's untapped. And um the potential there make it gives me chills and makes me want to cry <laughs> because there's just, you know, I, I'll tell a really quick story. Um when I went to Ghana the second time, uh, i I was, you know, in a conversation with a young woman who, in ghana you have to take a test to determine what kind of career you end up in so it's sort of like the sat but on steroids why right? it actually determines where you end up for school and she was telling me that she wanted to become a pharmacist she was really interested in science she was really passionate about it but because of this test they were telling her to go become a teacher and that conversation like just lives in my head rent free because i'm kind of like yo like if we just if people were allowed to be exactly who they were meant to be Where, what kind of world we live in um and i think in the case of africa as a continent it applies broadly this idea of you know quite frankly the soon-to-be largest workforce in the world you know not being tapped for potential not being given the opportunities and resources needed to thrive we need it the world needs it desperately and so the next generation gives me a lot of hope
0: i like that Anna, thank you so damn much. This has been great. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at moongi.ngomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.